Welcome to Champagne Problems. We are your hosts, Robbie Shaw and Patrick Balsley. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we explore our mental health, well-being, performance, and longevity, and how our relationships with alcohol can influence each. No shame, no labeling, no judgment, just curiosity. Hello again, loyal listeners, and welcome to anyone here for the first time. I'm very excited for today's guest, as the topic we will be covering is something that over 80% of people experience in their lives, and that is imposter syndrome. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Valerie Young. Dr. Young is considered to be the world's foremost expert on imposter syndrome and is the co-founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute. Dr. Young has spent the last 40 years of her life immersed in this research, study, and treatment, and we get to pick her brain today. Let's go to Dr. Young. Dr. Valerie Young, welcome to Champagne Problems. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Robbie. (laughs) Of course. We're thrilled as well to have you on. Um, Just as a, a, a kind of an intro from our part, you know, I've... I've battled imposter syndrome for years. Um, I'm sure you hear that all the time. Um, I'm not sure I knew quite what it was, but as I dig in, I can understand that the the symptoms or the characteristics that I was dealing with on on various transitions in my life certainly apply to what I've found is defined as imposter syndrome. Um, my my wife is a physician. And has done the same thing, you know, residency, fellowship, first job, second job. And each time in those transitions, it's like, I've got everybody duped, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. Um, so I'm very excited to talk about this. We, uh, we've learned about it organically, but I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to hear more formally uh, what it is and, and, and all you've spent your life <laughs> researching and, and doing. We want to get to know you real quick. We're going to ask some rapid fire questions. What was your first live music concert and where was it? Oh, God. <laughs> God, I want to say at Tanglewood, maybe Sly and the Family Stone, who showed up like three hours late and it was $10 <laughs> a ticket or $5, which was like outrageous back then. Oh, yeah. Or maybe Taj Mahal. He's from our area. Love it. Great answer. What can make you angry like nothing else? Uninformed people. Uninformed people. Love it. I can roll with that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. Obviously. I pretend to like cats. No, no offense to the, to the cat owners, but I'm a dog person. We got plenty of cat people listening. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Weirdos. <laughs> what's your favorite scenic view? Out my back window. I have a beautiful view of the, the Mount Tom range. If there was still skiing there, there used to be nighttime skiing when I was growing up, I could watch them skiing down the hill with my binoculars. Oh, wow. That's cool. Very cool. So you're where you grew up right now? I'm in that, yeah, I'm in that general area. It's kind of known as Pioneer Valley, the Connecticut River Valley. Yeah. Oh, neat. Nice. Wow. All right. Last question. If you could know the answer to any question, what would you ask? Uh, It would have to be like, what's next? Yeah. Like, what's what's on the other side? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Common answer. I think we all want to know that. Um, okay, so let's dive in. Uh, thank you for doing for playing along with the rapid fire. Um, so we kind of just touched on this a little bit, but tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, maybe college, you know, early education, and 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 what led you to where you are now. 
Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I did grow up in this area. I'm, uh, I consider myself a kind of working class New England Yankee, <laughs> if you if you will, which has a different meaning in the North. Than it the, does. It it's does. unrelated. Let me believe it. It's unrelated to the Civil War. It's just kind of, you know, folks who originally came from, from Britain, I guess. I don't know, you know, and, and Quebec, a lot of immigrants who came down from Quebec, you know, that's mm. kind of my, my back uh, emphasis on the working class side of things. So um, I was one of the first generations in my family to go to college. I went to the University of Massachusetts. It would have never occurred to me in a million years to even apply to like an Ivy League school. It's just out of my frame of reference and my family's frame of reference. Not that I would have gotten in. I don't know. Um, but while I was work going to school, my mom was also working there as a second shift custodian. Uh, my uncle was a custodian there. My aunt was a secretary in the athletic department. So that's, you know, it was kind of my orientation. Oh, wow. I had no expectations to go into graduate school. I didn't even know what graduate school was. I really stumbled into it and ended up in this uh, doctoral program following in someone else's shoes who I really admired. Once I was in this doctoral program, somebody brought in a paper by uh, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes called The Imposter Phenomenon Amongst High Achieving Women. And started describing how all these bright, capable, competent, I mean, they, they thought it was women because that's who Clance and I were working with at the time. Mm. Uh, and it felt like they were fooling folks. They were going to be found out. And I just was like nodding my head like a bobblehead doll. Right? Like, oh my God, that's <laughs> me. And I say that because it really, it shifted what I was going to be researching. It completely shifted my focus. I wanted to understand because I identified so strongly, like where where is this coming from? And how does this work? So that's what my research essentially was on. Mm -hmm. And then I spent wow. seven years in, in a Fortune uh, uh, 200 company. So I, you know, I, I'm not an academic. I want to be clear. I'm not a psychologist either. I'm, okay. I'm an educator. So I took what I found, Robbie um, and Patrick, from my research, and I immediately turned it into you know, a fancy term would be an educational intervention, You know, as opposed to like a therapeutic intervention. But Basically, I created a, an intensive one-day interactive workshop to really apply what I was learning and, and help folks kind of unlearn imposter syndrome. I love that. Like, can, can we can we kind of unpack that a little bit? And can you tell us a little bit about what you teach through that curriculum and what the dynamics or underlying dynamics of what would present as imposter syndrome look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, and I have to say, you know, back in the day, it was a full day program. Over the years, everyone wants MIC training. Sure. Like, you know, give us advanced leadership. And, you know, I got 45 yeah. minutes. Right? Yeah, right. So uh, do we. We like that, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was essentially an opportunity for instead of someone standing up and either lecturing someone or someone going to therapy and being asked, well, how does that make you feel? And tell me about your family, you know, uh, which is not that that's not unimportant, but it was a way for people collectively to be together in a room who share this common experience to get a common definition, what it is, what it's not, start to explore, in some cases, what are the family messages that you might have gotten growing up that might have led you to have imposter feelings later in life? Um, you know, what are some of the societal sources, for example? But one of the key exercises I would do with people is have them uh, on their own and then in a group come up with the imposter rule book. In other words, if somebody walked in and said, what are you doing? And we said, oh, we're 
we're talking about imposter syndrome and they said, what's that? We go, oh, here's the rule book. If you think like this, you can feel like an imposter. So it's in other words, if I was really intelligent, capable, competent, I should, or I'd never, or I'd always. I'd always be confident. I'd always know the answer. I should never make a mistake. I'd understand things before I started out. This wouldn't be so hard. And people would do it on their own and then they'd share it in a group and we would literally fill this, the walls with flip charts full of these unrealistic, unsustainable rules. And once you see them in writing, you're like, yeah, no human on the planet could ever <laughs> do these, right? Consistently, right. That's, that's what we're holding ourselves to. So that would be an example of what we would do. Uh, just quickly, we also... There's a process called the trumpet process that this guy, Gerald Weinstein, had pioneered, which is to take a dysfunctional pattern, like to, to understand it more deeply, because these are unconscious patterns, understand like what are the situations where imposter feelings come up? What are the behavior? You know, in other words, whenever I'm in a situation where I'm on a podcast, right? I'm mm -hmm. in a room with people more senior than me or more educated than me or more experienced than me, or somebody asks me a question, or I'm in my performance review, or I get a promotion. I usually experience feelings of what the negative voices in my head start saying. And what I typically do is X. So to help them tease out what's happening as a pattern, what are they getting out of it? And what is it costing them? Sure. So these are like individual and group exercises to, to understand on a deeper level. Got it. My mind is, is it just races over this, this topic. Um, but I'm going to try to organize my questions and, and maybe start kind of more in the uh, elementary phase of, of more kind of formal definition of, of imposter syndrome. Let's just do that for our listeners to start. And then we can start kind of breaking it down a little bit because I personally have a lot of questions. Well, I was say it's important that, that we're doing that, Robbie, because yeah. people mistake, they think it's just any normal anxiety before a job interview like oh you got imposter syndrome or it must right. be imposter. like no maybe you're just nervous because you're going to make a big presentation <laughs> like that's yeah. um really to me there's kind of three elements to this imposter experience if you will right it's this kind of core belief consciously or unconsciously that deep down i'm really not as intelligent capable competent talented qualified as everyone else seems to think that i am number two we have these feelings despite concrete evidence sometimes in some people's cases overwhelming compelling evidence to the <laughs> right. contrary that of our past achievements or our current abilities and third is the result is we're left with this fear that sooner or later we're going to be found out mm -hmm. that the truth in our mind the truth is going to be revealed and we'll be found to be a fraud one quick question on that so is there a time frame associated with it in, in the sense that like you said, often it, it could be somewhat preliminary and you are start doing something new where you actually don't know as well as, you know, other people. And so you have these thoughts, oh, I wish I could be more equipped for this. And but then over time and doing so and gaining more experience, that feeling, that self-talk, that subconscious um, idea starts to diminish. I mean, is that kind of how it can work? It, it certainly can. Or let me offer you an alternative. To me, the, the opposite of imposter syndrome isn't an, being an arrogant, smartest guy in the room, narcissistic jerk. That's how it's usually framed, right? You have a choice. You can be the, this guy right over here. Or you can, I don't want to say guy, but you know, you know what I mean? Like, this, yes, yes, yes. You know, smart. You know, this, thinks they know everything. Irrational self-confidence syndrome. Ego, ego. Way. Ego. Um, or you can feel like an imposter. And I would invite your listeners to consider a third option, which is to become a humble realist. 
a humble realist goes into a new situation or they start a new business or whatever it might be, they expect a certain amount of anxiety and fear and unknowing going in. So they're not judging themselves as an imposter because this isn't surprising to them. They, they look at it like, of course, I don't know everything. I've never done this before. How would I know? It's my first podcast, right? If you're starting a podcast or I've mm -hmm. never had my art in a gallery or I've never been a medical student before, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, bombarded, overwhelmed with training and information in medical school. Medical culture is all about shaming. Shaming residents for not knowing things, shaming mm -hmm. students. So, you know, it's a difference between going, well, it's not about me. I am in this culture that I didn't know I was signing up for, but this is the culture I am. And, and of course, I feel this way under the circumstances. Does that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And those three, those three kind of distinct criteria that you just mentioned to you know meet the definition of imposter syndrome. Is there any flexibility there, or is it like do those three things have to be presenting themselves in order for you to be considered to have imposter syndrome? In my view, they do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not a psychologist. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, in, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because otherwise, it's just anxiety. Yeah, it's like yeah. normal, you know, what I would consider. And some people, for some people, it's 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 extreme, right? Anxiety, and that's sure. that that's an issue, clearly. Um, but I, yeah, I do think I do think that the short answer is yes. I think they yeah. have to be operating. Well, and and I mean, we could go into a the longer answer because there's there is as I'm sure you're going to be able to educate us on root causes. And they're, they're, like you said, there's the kind of how we were brought up and, and some of the, the expectations that were, you know, put on us and now we hold. And, and so they're so irrational, whether it's inside the household or uh, in society. So, so let's talk uh, kind of causes, root causes of these things. Is imposter syndrome kind of in that same light? Yes and no. And let me tell okay. you what I mean by that. Cause I'm, well aware of the, you know, the therapeutic model. Um, mm -hmm. I was recently asked to contribute to a book being put out by the APA. I'm the only non-psychologist. I'm the only non-clinician and the only non-academic, which is scary as hell to like write that book. <laughs> I know who I'm feeling like I an imposter. <laughs> well, and I know who I'm speaking. I know the audience I'm speaking to. I, I got my, as I described it, my non-peer peer review. Yeah, there you go. Um, after that. But I know from, from a, cl a clinician point of view that in my experience, there's a lot of focus on family messages and expectations. And I think it's important. And I don't think it's the only thing. And we can talk about that in a minute, but it is important. So I don't want to diminish that at all. You know, if you were the kid who was um, came home with four A's and one B and your family's only response is, okay, Robbie, Right. What's that bee doing there? Right. You just described my family, Dr. Young. <laughs> Somebody said to me, she's an Indian American. She said the message she got in her family is if you're not outstanding, don't come home. Right. Right. Second place is the first loser. <laughs> no, no, no pressure. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, so the point that I make to, to folks is, um, you know, I mean, and your parents are trying to do the best they can, right? There's lots of reasons they, they might've pushed you to excel. Maybe they're highly educated and they want you to follow in their footsteps. Or if you have an immigrant experience, you know, uh, education is seen as the path to success for the child and perhaps the survival of the family. 
you know, in a lot of black families, the message is you have to be better, right? You mm. have to be better. So you have to get these grades. But when you're a kid, none of these reasons matter because for you, praise is like oxygen. Mm. And so, and then other kids might have come home and, and gotten very good grades and gotten no praise at all. And it's not that their parents are bad, mean, evil parents. Like maybe they didn't get it growing up, so they don't know how to give it. Maybe there was another kid struggling academically and they don't want to make little Billy feels bad by praising one kid more than the others. Yeah. Uh, maybe they don't value education. Maybe they define success as going into the military or the family business or producing some grandchildren or you know whatever that definition is. They don't value education. I mean, there's many, many reasons why that might happen. But if you're a kid, none of that matters because praise is like oxygen. And then some kids got too much oxygen. <laughs> right where they were told everything they did was remarkable and then they grow up and they slam into stuff where they're not remarkable and they don't quite know what to do with that mm. or, or sometimes people use the example of um uh, it's interesting to have this conversation with people in the mental health field but one of the the the, the frameworks i think clance and i pauline clance who coined one of the co-coiners of the term imposter phenomena talked about kind of family myths and labels where one kid is designated, or let me back up, let me say it a different way. Kids get labeled early on. So they might be like the funny one, the athletic one, the shy one, the bad one. And then there's usually the smart one. Mm. And if you didn't get to be the smart one, you might spend your whole life trying to get your parents to notice you. Hey, look at me. I went to MIT. Hey, I'm a clinician. Hey, I got a podcast. Check me out. And it's like, and I always tell people, here's the thing. They pick the smart one. It's not you came over like <laughs> I just saved you a lot of time and money in therapy right there right not you. <laughs> it's not you and then you know and then the kid um is the smart one that could be a tremendous amount of pressure mm. to maintain you know that status of being the smart one so I really invite encourage people to look at how is success defined in my family have I exceeded that family expectation have I fallen short I mean either one will send you into therapy right uh in my view <laughs> So I think it's very, very important. My concern is I see people getting stuck there. People have emailed me or come up to me after a talk and said, I spent four years in therapy, like looking for that wound, like trying to find that like core pivotal moment or experience in my childhood that is the source of all imposter feelings. And they're like, I had a really good child. Like they can't think of anything. Hmm. And I guess I'm just like, you know, I, I don't think it's not one thing, it's your mother, right? We don't exist in a vacuum. So for some people, it might have far more to do with being in medical school and medical culture or being an academic or being in a creative field where you're being judged by subjective standards or yeah. you're the only, you're the first indigenous person to be the regional manager in your company. I mean, there's other reasons, there's societal sources, occupational sources, situational sources, that I think we have to look at the whole picture. So it's coming from both sides. So it's like a little bit of history and then the soup that you're currently baking in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can the, can some of this stem from current mental health issues such as depression and anxiety that, that is showing up in the feelings of, of being a fraud? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of research uh, that does show there is a link between anxiety and depression and imposter feelings. Mm. Uh, that's not the case for everyone, but unsurprisingly, you know, there right. is for many people a connection. 
Let me tell you what I found in my early research and I continue to maintain today is kind of the, the core source, meaning if all those other factors went away tomorrow, but this remained intact, nothing would change. And, and to me, the core source is our unrealistic, unsustainable expectations about what it means to be competent mm. and unhealthy response to failure, mistake, constructive criticism, setbacks. And this unrealistic idea that if I was really competent, I'd feel confident 24 mm seven. -hmm. And to me, that's to understand that regardless of where it came from, I just set that over here, that this is an individual experience around imposter. It's also a collective mindset of people who feel like imposters. Yeah. And I say uh, that just that can be incredibly liberating for someone to go, wait a minute, there's a name for this. Yeah. Other people feel that way too. That alone can be liberating. Understanding that there's a collective thinking going on that is common to folks with imposter feeling, I think can also be liberating because then there's a solution. Sure. Hmm. Is there that let me back up a little bit? I had another question about kind of the the nurture side of things and, and the developmental side and what could lead to some of these feelings. Um, it, is, do you see or have you kind of identified over your years of experience and research that there is like a that there is like a and you may have answered this question already, but like a, a, either a, a family dynamic that stands out like way more than others that are going to lead to like more present symptomology of this? Like, is there something, is there like one or two things that you've identified that, that are going to increase the probability of somebody experiencing this more than anything else, like by far, or is it a combination of, and I'll let you answer this, but one of the things that rang true to me was that, that, you know, the kid that gets all the praise that doesn't really deserve it. And then coming up against something that would really, really challenge him later, later on in life without having that like true competency or like real confidence. Um, but is there, is there something that's more than the rest? Yeah. I, I wish I could tell you with confidence. Cause I'm, again, I'm not an academic. I'm, you know, yeah. I know there's research on birth order, okay. alcoholism, uh, narcissistic, one parent, both parents, you know, sure. so there's a number of variables that have been looked at trying to find what is that kind of common denominator. And in my understanding, I can check with Kevin Coakley at the University of Michigan. Um, to, I don't think there's this one thing yeah, yeah. That, that's been found. Okay. And, and is there a push um, to include imposter syndrome in some sort of DSM type resource <laughs> yeah kevin dr coakley was he was in one of the many people on a paper that looked at 60 uh, research papers that met certain criteria and they they put it into a grid that might be very interesting for you robbie to take a look at because it it puts it into a grid here here's the subjects here's what they were focusing on here's the number of people and here's the findings kind of thing the percentages who experienced it and so on um and i mentioned that because it was done by out of a, a everyone else was uh, MDs and Kevin's a psychologist. Mm -hmm. he, all the MDs who were involved, they wanted and they did, they recommended at the end that it be in the DSM, Diagnostic Statistical yeah. Manual. He like strongly disagreed as a psychologist. I also, I also disagree. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, 
so let's go into some of the uh, treatment and dealing with, um, and I know we, we touched on that a little bit, but so I like to use, you know, examples. Um, I, I, I battle imposter syndrome tremendously in everything I do. I, I feel that way. Now, everything you've said so far rings true. I can probably understand why the self-talk, the reaction to negative stimuli or, you know, pain points, all the things like I, I probably check every box. I work on it. Now I chalk it up to anxiety, um, you know, some sort of kind of depressive state as a result of not living the way I feel like I should. And then that translates over to how I feel walking into this studio and doing a podcast. I'm not a pod podcaster. I'm not as smart as Joe Rogan. I'm going to sound like an idiot to Dr. Young. And just that's the voice in my head constantly. And I work on that and I battle that all the time. So, so talk to me about that. How, fix him, Dr. Young. Yeah, fix it. That's why you're really here. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> just I like to pr provide a very organic, you know, example just so we can kind of touch on how to treat and look at. Yeah. Yeah, you know, interestingly, there was a study at the University of Vienna that found that people who had low self-compassion for how they spoke to themselves, not surprisingly, had higher levels of imposter feelings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some ways, we're talking, some ways, talking basic cognitive behavioral therapy of changing your thoughts first, then changing your behaviors to act like someone who believed the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And over time, the feelings will catch up. What I'm trying to, you know, and I think that's important because what everybody wants, whether it's reading a book or attending a workshop, you know, they, they want to walk in feeling like an imposter and leave not feeling like an imposter. <laughs> right. right. And that's when I have to like break it to them. That's not <laughs> yeah. how it works, right? Yeah. That, feelings that, feed, are the last. that feeds imposter syndrome. <laughs> exactly. Because then they go like, oh, I must be a hopeless case, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, We're not I've been here for an today, hour. Right? Sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny because people come up or they I used to give people 10 things they could do. Now I give them three. I keep it simple. I gave you to give them 10 <laughs> and they go, Well, this is great, but is there anything else we can do? And I would say, well, of the 10 things I gave you, what have you tried? They said, Well, nothing, but is there anything else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really like those. <laughs> and truly, it took me decades. I, I you know, I was like, what am I doing wrong? Like what could, in the evaluation, they that would be the one thing that they would say, I wish she told us more things we could do. And I think, well, maybe 20, maybe 80, like what's a good number? <laughs> and that's when it hit me that truly what they wanted was to walk in feeling this way and walk out not feeling that way. So now, even though I said it before, I am like much more explicit now that that is not how it works. Mm -hmm. In my view, the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. Yeah. So back to self-compassion, wa walking in the door, doing a podcast, a, a different voice could be, I've never done a podcast before. Boy, this is going to be a real great learning experience. The more I do yeah. anything, the better I'll get. Yeah. Not I'm going to yeah. suck or I'm going to get be embarrassed, but I I'm new at this. This will yeah. this will be interesting. And if I suck and I, I stumble, it's like, you know, to be able to like let it roll off you more quickly. And, and be able to laugh at it and kind of just move on more quickly. Yeah. And that, that example for me, just, just to clarify, was very much in the beginning and, and less now. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do walk in with a lot more confidence now, but, but to your point, it, it, or, or to the point of one of my questions early on was, does it kind of 
decrease over time as you, you know, gain more experience, gain more wisdom on, uh, on, on what you're doing. Um, and that's been my experience is the more I do something, the less I feel like an imposter. But the tricky part with that, if that's what you're depending on, Robbie, is you're going to have another experience where you're not going to know what you're doing. Sure. That's going to be new. And then you're going to be back in the cycle. But if you kind of break the cycle to begin with, to, to go back to, I'm going to use the term to, to think like a humble realist, then you come into it with a completely different mindset. Yeah. You know, there's this guy in my town. He was on the town council for 12 years. He ran for re-election and he lost. I mean, he disappointed, maybe out of embarrassed. I don't know what he felt, but you would assume he didn't feel great. Mm. The very next day he went to Boston. He took out papers to run for state office. And, and the quote in the paper was, he said it was the next natural step. And I remember thinking, that's not intuitive to me. <laughs> that the next natural, natural step, step following a setback <laughs> is to shoot higher. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, like, but why not? Like, why wouldn't he? He's perfectly capable of running. You know, he's been in office for 12 years on a local level. Why couldn't he? But mm-hmm. that's what I mean by kind of reframing our thinking. Mm-hmm. People who are humble realists, you know, who, and what I, what I mean by that is they are genuinely humble, but they have never experienced imposter feelings. They really don't know what I'm talking about when I bring it up. They're no more intelligent, capable, competent than the rest of us. It's just in the exact same situation where we might have imposter feelings, they're thinking different thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not a pep talk. It's like, you got this and you can do it and you deserve to be here, you know, which is true, but it's not going to move the needle in any lasting way. They think differently about what it means to be competent. They have a realistic understanding of competence. They have a healthy response to failure, mistakes, setbacks, and constructive criticism, which when you have imposter feelings, wounds us deeply. Mm-hmm. Anything that's you know critical, like it proof we must be an imposter. Yeah. Uh, and they also understand that a certain amount of fear and self-doubt are part of the achievement journey. Yeah. Which is important because I hear people who feel like imposters, the fact that they even have imposter feelings proves they must be an imposter. Right. Right. Because right. they think if I was really competent, I'd be confident all the time. And my message is like, good luck with that. Yeah. This reminds me, I mean, it, it's it, to me, this sounds like you have to make like a whole context shift of like how you look at the, you know, look at yourself and your mind. And it, it, it makes me think about like mindfulness practices and acceptance and commitment therapy and like how it's, you know, less cognitive and more a context shift. Um, and it just just makes it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And and the and I understand that like the educational side of how important that is and how that kind of has to be how it's taught. You kind of have to unlearn how you think to change the way you think. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I think schools can really help there. Or I mean, think about when someone coming up on stage to give a speech and they read all the glorious things about this person and their background and how prestigious it is. No one says they got fired from their first job. They didn't get mm-hmm. into the their top five college choices. They yeah. they flunked algebra, you know. What I mean? Right. <laughs> you know, so we kind of project this notion that success is like this when in fact success is like this. As we talk about it in that light, it 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 is very societal. It is very American to think that way. It, it, we just we just have these these mm. people that we we look at and we're constantly, you know, 
holding up on these pedestals and, and, Ooh, I could be like that, or I should be like that, or that's the American dream, or I want the big house, or I want it just, just constantly, I need more, want more, more, more should more. be more. Yeah. And Maybe. social media isn't helping that. No. Right? Good well, Lord, no. Everyone suddenly is living their best life simultaneously. Just, <laughs> but, yeah. Right. Right. Because we can now take pictures of it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. and it kind of, I think, it, you know, not maybe intentionally, but I think it kind of makes it look easy if you're not sharing it. You know, I, I would urge your listeners to Google Princeton professor failure CV. You know, he has his clearly very impressive Princeton tenure professor CV, but he also posted his failure CV. Oh, the wow. Journals that rejected him, the jobs he didn't get, you know, he went through the whole list. And it kind of rocked the academic world because, again, we only present one side of the story. We don't present the the, uh, the inevitable kind of ups and downs. Oh, we don't prepare doctoral students going in that says you are in a culture of critique. No one is going to write in the margins. Well-crafted paragraph, interesting analysis. They're only going to tell you what you did wrong. <laughs> and if no one informs you of that, you you think it's you. So I think there's a lot of re-education to uh, your point, Robbie, that, that needs to happen. I mean, changing mindset and, and context and awareness. God, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. That you know So we actually tell the truth. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. What, a, what a novel thing. We don't live a life of just fluff. <laughs> it's hard if you're a parent, right? Because you want your kid to do well. Sure. sure. You know sure. your kid is capable of doing more. You know, I think it's called low effort syndrome. You can look it up. Maybe somebody just made that up. But, you know, the, the, this kid who you know is bright and capable, that they steadfastly refuse to apply themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and unconsciously, what might be happening is I'd rather my parents, the teachers, everyone think I'm lazy than stupid. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. right? if I try and I fail, you know, then they'll know. Um, but from a parent's point of view, there's a good book I recommend called, I think it's called The Gift of Failure. Mm -hmm. It's aimed at parents by a parent. And as a parent, everything in you wants to say this to your kid. And here's why yeah, you need right. to say yeah, this. This is right? how it's going to mess them, them up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you know uh, Dr. Lisa Damore? You know yeah, she's a she's a parenting uh, psychologist. I mean, you know, everything in the parenting world. And she's written a few books. And she, she was actually on last week for the second for the second time. And she um it's fascinating to talk to her about this kind of stuff because it, you know, kind of to your point, it always, it falls into this like balance, you know, it's, it's never way over here, way over here. It's like, well, what if this happens? Well, then you kind of try to bring it back here. Well, what if that happens? Well, bring it back to about right here. So it's just, just this constant like way that you talk and, and, and just, you're kind of just trying to facilitate, keep it, keep them in the, keep them within the guardrails, you know, throughout. Right. I mean, Carol Dweck, I, there was a wonderful example she used in her book, Mindset, which was uh, uh, the typical dinnertime conversation with kids is what did you learn in school today? Mm -hmm. To which they say nothing, right? Mm -hmm. or, I don't remember, which is what we said. I'm quite sure. sure. Exactly. And she said, wouldn't it be more useful to say, let's all go around the table and talk about something that we struggled with, that we failed at, it was hard or challenging and how we handled it. I'll start. Mm. So yeah. to even like once a week kind of model that for kids about overcoming adversity and being resilient, I think it's, is, is really important. Yeah. We had uh who was it? I think Emily Fletcher that was talking about Bud, Bud Rose Thorne. It's like yeah, Bud Rose she Thorne. does with her kids where, one thing you struggled with, one thing you're working on, and one thing that was 
you know, one thing you made progress with and one thing that was, went really well. Yeah. yeah Looking really, forward to yeah, Bud Rose Thorn. really cool. Yeah. Great practice. All right, Dr. Young, I know we're getting towards the end. Um, let's do one quick kind of, um, I don't know, I don't want to call it promotion, but how can we, how can our listeners, um, you know, if, if just people's lights are going off listening to this, where can, where can they go? Uh, website, you know, there's something to read. I know you mentioned a few things, but let's list off maybe two or three things that our listeners can do if they're, if this is all ringing true for them. Uh, com. they can go there. I've made available as a free download the most widely shared and frankly plagiarized part of my work, which is these kind of uh, five types of quote unquote types of imposter syndrome, the perfectionist, the expert, natural genius, soloist, and the superhuman, different manifestations of how we exaggerate and measure our competence. That's free. They can go get that. There's other resources, books and articles at impostorsyndrome.com. And we have a training coming up called the Imposter Syndrome Informed Coach which is not just for coaches, it's for anybody who works directly with individuals, might be a faculty advisor or a mentor, um, so that they can be more informed as they're working with people because there's so much nonsense out on the internet right now about imposter syndrome Hmm. that we want to bring some more, again, informed awareness to the topic. And then how can you coach someone to to make that shift to humble realist? Got it. Do you just a sad sad question? Do you all work with organizations? Would you would you come into a? I mean, it seems like this would be such a valuable um, content and topic for like a medical school. Yeah, I've probably spoken at least ten medical. Schools okay, good. So yeah, before. yeah, I've spoken. I didn't come up with that idea. All right. Got yeah, it. no, I've spoken over <laughs> hundred universities around the world. It's a huge issue in STEM. It's a big issue in doctoral programs, medical schools, and I do a lot of work with. Um, major corporations and big law firms as well. I mean, it's just, it's rampant. I mean, yeah, here's yeah. the thing, you know, if, if 80% of people feel this way, that means we're in the majority, <laughs> right? right? Like the point I made in my chapter that I mentioned to you is like, why aren't we studying that minority within the minority who are humble, but haven't had these feelings? To me, the clues are there. Uh, yeah. Like, what are they doing or thinking differently that other people can learn from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. One final question, little bit of a little bit of a thinker, Dr. Valerie Young. Why do you care so much? Oh, how do you not? <laughs> you know, let me. I think because everybody loses when bright people play small. Mm. You know, I I see the impact, whether it's burnout, whether it's flying under the radar. You know, there are behaviors associated with imposter that have costs and consequences for individuals for organizations, and I think for society. Well, Dr. Young, you are doing incredible work. Like you said, 80% plus are dealing with this. Um, Thank you so much for all you do. Yeah, thanks for dedicating your career to this. Um, What you just said in that last question really, really makes a lot of sense to me. I can't imagine how much lost potential Mm. has been, you know, gone down the drain because of self-doubt and everything else that has to do with this. So I appreciate your work. Thank you. That, I, that means a lot to me hearing that from you. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. Visit Patrick Balsley's practice, sanacounseling.com, 
Robbie Shaw's practice, eventiderecovery.com, or visit theblanchardinstitute.com. <laughs>